Welcome to Double Exposure, the podcast where they sleep, we see, and the mullet lives. <laughs> the return of the mullet. That's the real reason. The mullet. We found it. Exactly. That's the real reason I chose this We film. found the red mullet from leaving Las Vegas. It was in 1988. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Adam Harris. I'm Stacey Robinson. And this week's episode is They Live. So I picked a really different film this time round. Mm -hmm. It's I don't think it's like any of the other films that we've had on before. Although maybe the closest we've had is when you were referencing Starship Troopers in the last episode. Uh huh. Yeah. Both of these films really function as like allegorical tales. Yes, and with with sort of B movie vibes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's uh, it's something new, but we don't discriminate here at Double Exposure, so I'm excited to get into it. Yeah, me too. Before we do, though, I wanted to ask, what have you been watching lately? So I watched, have you heard of a movie called The Women? The name sounds familiar to me. Does it have Nicole Kidman in? No. So it's it's a, the original movie is from 1939. Mm-hmm. And then it was remade in 2008 with Meg Ryan, okay, among other people. Um, and the premise of it is that it's a movie of all women. There are no men in the movie. Mm-hmm. And it revolves around a woman who finds out that her husband is having an affair. And it's sort of the journey she goes on with that as told through her female friendships and the women in her life. Oh, cool. Yeah, so it's a cool premise. It's pretty interesting. But I do, I do actually need to complain. So, okay. <laughs> so we started with the original, and then we watched the remake back to back. Okay. And the original, it's fun. It's got you know some witty banter in it. It has, um, it has Joan Crawford as the sort of villainous other woman. Perfect. And she's great. It has um, Rosalind Russell. If you know who that is, I don't know. Have you seen His Girl Friday or heard of it? Oh, yeah. Okay. okay. A long time ago. Yeah, yeah. She's the she's the female lean in that. She's great. But it's very of its time. You know, like it's 1939. It's considered this sort of radical thing that this woman decides to divorce her husband, mm-hmm. which she does do. But every, so everyone around her is telling her, like, you can't, you have to just be a good wife and just put up with it and husbands cheat and whatever. And to the movie's credit, she doesn't do that and she does leave him. But then she goes back to him in the end. Ah, okay. So it feels like for its time, it was probably pretty progressive just to say, well, she needs to take a stand. And the only reason why she's able to go back to him in the end is because she sort of stood up for herself at this point. Right, yeah. But all roads still lead to 
go back to your husband because your daughter needs two parents. And well, of course, yeah. We all know that you couldn't have possibly been happy by yourself. So aren't you happy now? And <laughs> yeah, it's pretty depressing. Uh, okay. All right. Yeah. So that's kind of what it is. So we watched that. My My female friend and I, we were sort of sad about where that went. But there's obviously the remake from 2008, mm-hmm. which... We didn't necessarily have a lot of faith in (laughs) to be that much better. But you can hold out hope, you know, maybe, just maybe it's going to be all right. Yeah. And um, I ended up feeling like the 2008 version was actually more depressing (laughs) because it, I mean, it changed a few things like it, it gave her this sort of girl boss career woman angle where she like goes off and discovers herself and becomes a successful fashion designer while she's divorced from her husband Mm. and she takes a little bit more of a stand in going back to him as far as like oh but this is going to be on my terms this time Mm -hmm. so in a way it's a little bit better but it, it it reminded me of First Wives Club do you remember I do remember that yes we we watched that together in that it's sort of packaged as this like female you know girl power movie Mm -hmm. like oh all these women banding together and they don't need men and blah 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 but the whole movie still revolves around the marriage and it it doesn't actually end up feeling really empowering in any way and if anything it's just kind of annoying that she now has to also have a career and be a successful fashion designer in order for us to be happy for her um it was also Mm -hmm. honestly just a lot less funny and sort of more badly written it's disappointing so that was not surprising but disappointing well i will likely avoid both i can understand why i might have avoided the remake if it has meg ryan in it Mm. yeah but uh yeah it's always disappointing when a film will be remade and will take the original premise and you think oh they're going to do something with all the issues Right. And they don't. They come to the same conclusions, but they just take a modern spin on it. Very annoying, especially because the original feels like it's so ripe for a remake in that mm-hmm. it has some really interesting things going on, but it's it's so of its time. And if you could actually give it the makeover that it needed, it could have been so great. It just felt like this huge missed opportunity. Well, I'm sorry to hear they dropped the ball on it. Yeah. In counterpoint to you yes the film i watched wasn't called the men but it might have well have been okay uh, i saw predator i kept it stupid okay yeah and um yeah i watched predator because i intend to go and see prey which is a prequel in the predator universe which mm. has got reasonable reviews i mean all the predator films are bad except the first one but the first one is good and it's about some men in the jungle who shoot other men and then mm-hmm. have a fight with an alien it's um yeah, it's a text that is rich and, and <laughs> ripe for a remake, I think. So I'm looking forward to that. Wait, so was this the first of the Predator franchise as an offshoot of the Alien franchise? So uh, they're not offshoots. They kind of did the opposite. They got merged together because they're both cool aliens and Hollywood loves money. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, so it existed independently. Exactly. Oh, yeah. okay. The original movie has Schwarzenegger in it as a muscly army man Mm -hmm. and uh yeah he shoots guns and does lots of kind of 
Austrian accented shouting. That's great. Yeah, doing what he does best. Exactly, yeah. Why mess with a winning formula? He's good at what he does. Right, yes. I have not seen any of the of the Predator movies, but I've actually heard good things about the first one. The first one is good. The first one is definitely... It's very meat-headed, uh, as some other films that we may have watched might be, mm. but it's worth a watch, yeah, definitely. I don't think you need to do too much, like, deep searching of the of the text to uncover its meaning i don't know if it necessarily has a lot to say about anything in particular but uh that's almost comforting right sometimes saying less is is what we need exactly on that note i feel like that might be a good segue into our film of this week mm-hmm so this week's film is They Live, the 1988 John Carpenter science fiction classic, I would say, or at the very least, definitely a cult movie. Mm-hmm. It stars professional wrestler Roddy Piper and Keith David, who is a longtime Carpenter collaborator. And it follows a working man as he kind of uncovers the fact that the America he's living in is massively dystopian. Mm -hmm. Do you want to maybe give us a slightly more in-depth run-through and maybe let me know, is this the first time you've seen this film? Yes. So They Live begins with us meeting this character uh, who you mentioned, Rowdy Piper, whose name is Nada. And he's kind of a drifter. We don't really know his backstory, but he comes into town, some nondescript city. I I don't think it's ever mentioned what city it's meant to be. Although we do know he's leaving Denver, which I I noted. Uh, Yeah, true. Shout out. (laughs) Shout out to Denver. (laughs) The place where I am right now. So he's kind of down and out and ends up picking up some work on a construction site and there he meets Frank who tells him about this place he can go where he can get some food and spend the night so he's then staying with Frank and a bunch of other people in this sort of shanty town somewhere in the city and we see there's some kind of signal being intercepted on people's televisions that's telling them that they are being controlled and it keeps kind of cutting in and out. And Nada eventually figures out that this signal is coming from inside of a church nearby and that a group of people have this sort of front of a choir practice going on in the church, but they're actually transmitting this signal. So he starts trying to figure out kind of what's up with this and what's going on. And then the police descend on this shantytown and everybody gets chased away and scatters. And somewhere kind of in the aftermath of this battle that happens, he stumbles on a pair of sunglasses. And when he puts them on they reveal to him the world as it really is. 
So he sees everything in black and white. He sees through all of the subliminal messaging that's around him and what all the advertisements are actually saying to him. And most importantly, he sees that amongst human beings is a race of sort of zombie robot alien people who look like humans but are actually not. He then goes a little bit off the rails and starts um, calling people out, but then he has people coming after him. He finds a woman named Holly who he sort of holds hostage to get her to take him to his place. She then pushes him out of a window. Um, he meets back up with his friend Frank and with great Uh, which I'm sure we will talk about at length. He gets Frank to wear the sunglasses and see um, the truth that he can see. Um, They end up meeting back up with this group of rebels who are trying to get the word out of what's really going on and how everyone is being controlled. Uh, Holly is then there at this meeting, so they meet back up with her. They then get ambushed by the police, and everyone dies except for Frank, Holly, and Nada. Um, And it all culminates in them arriving at the headquarters of the evil alien people and the humans who are allied with them. And Holly turns out to be a double agent or a spy or whatever you want to call it. She mm-hmm. kills Frank and Nada ultimately succeeds in destroying the giant transmitter that the aliens are using to control everyone. And the truth is revealed. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good uh, summary. The section you were finding difficult to describe, I just thought of it as... You know the five stages of grief when mm-hmm. you deal with something traumatic, but if all the stages were anger? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's the quippy one-liners phase. There's the shooting people mm-hmm. phase. There's the beating up your best friend phase. <laughs> all of Beating up phases. your best friend for six minutes phase. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So was this the first time you've seen this movie then? Uh, yes, it was. I, ha- I had never seen it before. I, I'd i heard of it and I knew the thing about the sunglasses. I think I'd seen just the little bit where he first puts them on. And when the billboards are saying obey and consume mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. So I, I was aware of that, but that's it. I hadn't seen the film. What about you? Had you seen it? I mean, presumably, of course, you'd seen it before because you picked it, but. What's your story with it? So I feel like this movie is a classic of like boy canon. They're <laughs> this alien predator, they're like the Scarface, what are the Matrix? They're like the boy films you have to see when you're a teenager. Mm-hmm. And I didn't actually put two and two together until after I'd seen this movie. So I was aware of the Obey uh, sort of brand, I suppose. And then, like, the pieces fit in that, okay, that comes from this. But I watched it as a teenager, expecting it to be kind of just another action film. 
Mm-hmm. And in many ways it is just another action film, but it I don't think I was prepared initially for how subversive it would be mm-hmm. or how uh how on the nose it would be about its kind of anti-establishment, anti-capitalist message. Yeah, but so how old were you when you found it? I was probably about 12, I think. Okay. Yeah, like young enough that you're drawn in by the fighting and people beating each other up in an alleyway for six minutes. Yeah. And then I watched it again probably when I was 18 and then I was more in it for uh, the, the sort of satire, I suppose. Yeah. So what did you make of this movie then? When I first watched it, I was kind of taken aback. I think I I think I wasn't expecting it to be as kind of cheesy as it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was a little bit just like, oh, okay, this fight is going on <laughs> a long time. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I do think it's, I can see why it's a cult classic because it does feel like a, a film that it's fun and it's kind of light, but at the same time it holds up to repeat viewings and it, it has layers to it and it it is a, I think, pretty timeless message about control and capitalism and the freedom from it and all of those classic boy movie topics. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, my take on it was I had forgotten that the first half of the film really is just about him being down and out. I think what had stuck in my head was, oh, yeah, there's explosions. There's, you know, I'm here to kick ass and chew bubblegum. Mm. Those moments. Yeah. But I'd forgotten that, like, oh, he's in, like, a shanty town and everyone's struggling. Like, I'd forgotten about the buildup. Mm-hmm. Sort of like when you watch The Matrix and all you remember is the uh, like the wire fights and all of that sort of stuff. Right. But that it's the first half that make any of that have any context and any meaning. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I was a bit hesitant. I chose this film knowing that it's not that similar to the other films we've chosen i was looking at like oh well what accolades has it won what what awards does it have you know what what were people's process for um for making this Mm -hmm. and i mean at the time it was panned by critics not entirely so it did get some positive reviews but largely it was seen as being overly simplistic and stupid Mm -hmm. which which i mean sure yeah they're not fair (laughs) yeah fair (laughs) But that in retrospect, it's gone on to have yeah this cult classic status and have a really timeless quality, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. I I can certainly see that. I'm trying to think if there's anything it really reminds me of, like any other film with a similar vibe. I feel like there is one, but it's like right on the edge of my... Have you seen a movie called Hobo with a Shotgun? I have seen Hobo with a Shotgun. Yeah, yeah. with Rucker Hauer. Yeah, yeah it, it, it reminds me a little bit of that in that it's kind of very ridiculous, but not mm-hmm. without a, a purpose or a conscience. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I think Hobo with a Shotgun was directed by Robert Rodriguez. Right, who is yeah. a big John Carpenter fan, and you can definitely see the um, the references in that 
that that come from this. Yeah, I'm wondering, was this kind of a film that started that sort of genre or is it just sort of the most successful within that genre? It's definitely the most successful within that genre. I think the ideas have been bubbling around for quite a long time prior. So the script is based on a story <laughs> called Eight O'Clock in the Morning by Ray Nelson, which okay. was written in 1963. And uh, yeah, just like a quick aside about Ray Nelson. I did some mm. research about him because I'd never heard of him before. It turns out that he is the inventor of like the nerd beanie hat with the propeller on the top, which I think is a pretty really? cool claim to fame. Yeah. Wow. And that uh, he introduced Philip K. Dick to Acid. So, yeah. Damn, those are two, like, that's a really yeah. amazing resume. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> those are three things. Like, just doing one of those things, I think, is enough of an accomplishment that you can be proud of your life. <laughs> yeah. But all three, that's a, a, quite a lot of range within that as well. <laughs> that sounds yeah, like a definitely. life well lived. I definitely think it is, yeah. But so the kind of undercurrent of dissatisfaction, I feel like something like Invasion of the Body Snatchers mm. and then the subsequent remake of that yeah. or Scanners that uh, by David Cronenberg. There are a lot of these kind of, there's a lot of dissatisfaction with life in America, I guess. You know, it's like good to know that it's nothing new. Right. And I feel like it's a theme that was being explored, but always more as an undercurrent or an element of something else or a backdrop to something you know like oh wow why is everything so fucked up why is detroit so ruined right. you know you've got something like as we mentioned in the last episode robocop which also includes elements of like industrial america being a kind of wasteland mm. for for the common man yeah but this is the, a film that just uh it's effectively all it's about. It like doesn't, it, nothing is in the subtext. It's like all there for you and like, yeah, this sucks. And there are literal billboards that say obey and it's aliens. It's evil capitalist aliens who are using global warming to destroy the world. Yeah. Yeah. So is the original source material pretty much the same story as the film? So the short story is pretty similar. I feel like the concept is drawn from that. That's like the main takeaway. Mm -hmm. But it differs in a couple of ways that feel more like they're tied to the era. So the protagonist in the short story goes to a uh, hypnotist show mm. and is hypnotized. And through the hypnosis, realize that actually he's been de-hypnotized and everyone else is hypnotized to see the world the way it is. And mm -hmm. now he, uh, the, the hypnosis will wear off at eight o'clock in the morning. So he has a limited amount of time to do something with this knowledge that the world is not what it seems. Okay, so that's instead of the sunglasses. Exactly, yeah. And But are there still, is there still a community of people who also see things as they are? No, that's not, that's not in there in the same way. There's oh, not the okay. like church so element it's just or that. It's more like a kind of solo man alone sort of right, situation. Right, okay. One other big difference is that the protagonist of the short story discovers that he too is one of the interlopers, uh, which this film touches on in a way, the kind of human complicity and involvement, but it's mm -hmm. not done in such a direct way. 
and yeah, we'll so discuss that. You mean that later. he is an alien, or that he exactly? Yes, exactly. With he them. is no, he is an alien in this okay. film. The like we look at some of the characters within it operating with the aliens, his boss or or Holly, where it's unclear. We kind of have this feeling that something is wrong with them, or, or that they are in some way complicit, but that they're more. Um, they're like human collaborators rather than discovering that they are actually part of this race of aliens. Right. Yeah. Yeah, we will definitely get into that. Um, the decision not to include that, I think, is is definitely worth exploring a little bit. Yeah. I think that those choices, the choices in how Carpenter different. Uh, those choices in how Carpenter sort of deviates from the short story are what give this version more life or make it feel grounded in the era that it's from. Mm-hmm. So it does have this sort of um, post-80s or like late 80s kind of desperation that everything is really run down and that kind of capitalism is the tool of choice of these aliens and consumerism specifically yeah i think that john carpenter his films can often feel quite simplistic Mm. or kind of very surface level in that they tend to be quite direct they're about what they're about they can have this literal bent to them but that it's these small choices that are included that really they really mark his film out for mark his films out for cult status. One thing I really liked about this film that isn't in the book is the use of the church or like the recurring motif of like they use the church as cover for mm-hmm. their kind of freedom fighting organization. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me of um, like gospel or the idea of like slaves in the United States using kind of codes from within the bible to communicate with each other and like developing a language and using christianity almost as a cover for their escape from slavery Ooh, that's very interesting yeah uh before we go further into this film i also wanted to see have you seen any other john carpenter movies or are you like aware of his material no i was just gonna ask you know is this pretty typical of his style because I, I haven't seen any of his other films do they all do they all tend to have a kind of broader like cultural message to them or uh, yeah talk to me about talk to me more about him because I don't really know much about John Carpenter's work so he's really famous as a b-movie director I'd say so he's probably most famous for the Halloween movies with Michael Myers mm-hmm. oh okay and he also did Escape from New York and Escape from L.A. with Kurt Russell. Okay. Uh, again, that's kind of set in like a dystopian future United States that has already been ruined. It's not on its way there. It's like a sort of Mad Max-esque kind of America is over sort of um, landscape that it takes place in. Right. Uh, and then also kind of more schlocky, silly films like Big Trouble in Little China and Prince of Darkness. Uh, okay. they are generally not quite as on the nose as this one. This is definitely his like most literal movie. Mm-hmm. He reminds me a lot of someone like George Romero, 
who did Night of the Living Dead and, you know, that genre of um, zombie movies? Yeah, I think I I think I had assumed that this was a zombie movie because of the title. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's it's a you know the the title itself it reminds me of those like horror science fiction movies from the fifties or something like The Blob or mm-hmm. something like it just sounds threatening and scary in this really simple way. But having seen the movie, I don't know if I don't know what what's your take on the title because I feel like there's this phrase that's repeated or at least it's stated when he's in the church. I'm not sure if it's repeated throughout the movie, but it says like, they live, we sleep. Mm-hmm. So I guess the title is in reference to there being this sort of separate elite that are the ones actually free and actually living. And we're just mm-hmm. their slaves. Yeah. Yeah. I found the title really enigmatic when i was a kid and the poster as well mm. of um roddy piper kind of pulling down his sunglasses in shock yes, and you can see reflected very, in very the sunglasses the poster yeah 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 the the hideous ghoulish face mm-hmm. and yeah i think that it's so simple one the idea of like this othering effect of instantly we understand from they live that like they is not us that there's like this other group immediately and then also, yeah, as you said in the film, I don't think it's repeated. It's a recurring motif, but I don't think it's repeated in exactly those words. But other characters sort of dance around that idea of like the world is theirs and we just live in it. Right, and, right. Yeah. Yeah, I think maybe that's that's the that's the difference is that when I just hear the the title they live with none of that context. I think of something like a zombie movie where it's like, oh, they're alive Mm -hmm. and they shouldn't be. But that actually the title is like they live as opposed to us living. Yeah. Yeah. It's also interesting because it it does conjure up this idea of the zombie movie. But Mm -hmm. then really, we are the zombies. Yeah. You said that it was kind of not universally, but like largely poorly received at the time mm-hmm. um was this one of those movies that developed a cult following after the advent of you know vhs or dvd or something like that or or did it develop it pretty quickly do you know kind of the trajectory of it as a of its cult status so the film despite not getting great reviews was number one at the american box office Oh, okay. Initially, initially when it was released. So people saw this when it came out. Okay, so it was commercially pretty successful. It was commercially ex- successful, yeah. So yeah. I think it was made on a budget of about $3 million mm. and grossed 13 So it's like a, quite a low-budget film, and it grossed significantly more than it was made for. Mm-hmm. So it was sort of a commercial success, although not a massive one. Right. I found it really hard doing research to pinpoint what the relationship between the fashion brand Obey and the film's cult status was, because it almost became this unofficial merchandising for the film. Mm. So a stencil and graffiti artist called Shepard Fairey, he graduated in 88 and in 89 started passing out sort of stickers that said... um, 
Andre the Giant has a posse. Mm. It's unclear as to like what that was about or in reference to. But okay. then shortly thereafter, he had started tying in the Obey imagery with this stencil that he'd done of Andre the Giant's face. Mm-hmm. Andre the Giant of Princess Bride fame. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Who was who was a wrestler mainly? He was a wrestler, and he did have uh, a match against Roddy Piper, at least one. Oh, so, did he? Oh, okay. Yeah. Hmm. Weird how the the circle closes. Right. But this kind of slightly so the the image is massively cropped, so it's just kind of like from the bottom of Andre the Giant's lip to like his eyebrows, and then it cuts at the side of his um at like the edges of his face. Mm-hmm. So it's like hyper close up in black and white that kind of resembles the ghoulish creatures in They Live a Little Bit. Okay. And then that, and then the um, the imagery from the film, largely the Obey slogan, uh, but also the This Is Your God that's written on the dollar bills in black and white, mm. was used and kind of gained quite a lot of traction, initially in more sort of silly subversive kind of like in the skate world apparently it was quite big and the clothing brand started to kind of boom because the production design is just so good and like the i think it's just such a neat idea to have this fucking obey logo everywhere right and yes it was unclear to me did is that responsible for it or did the cult following the film was was building up by being on VHS, feeding into that. And I think they probably ended up having a kind of symbiotic relationship. It's like having an additional ad campaign out for your film long after it's been on. Mm-hmm, right. And I think kind of in the same way that we'd mentioned uh, Romero before, or maybe someone like David Cronenberg, these movies that are sort of subversive and often quite gross and play with... Um, and play with sort of pulp fiction themes of science fiction or horror mm-hmm. were being reclaimed and looked at through a different kind of critical eye, I suppose. Yeah. I think that just had this sort of snowball effect. And to be honest, that's probably how I first got to see the film was that I was just aware of it as a classic that was about things. <laughs> <laughs> You know, like, oh, that film. Yeah, that film's about stuff. I should probably watch that film. Right. Like, society. Exactly, yeah. We live in a society. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Classic. Yeah. But I wanted to get into you as to why do you think that's the case with maybe this film specifically, but also in general? I think there are a lot of films that maybe aren't especially well-received at the time, that then garner this really huge cult classic. Do you have any ideas about what causes that? You know, I actually think this might be a little bit of a sentimental answer, but I think that cult classics have a lot to do with just heart. Mm-hmm. Um, like when a film, I think particularly a low budget film, because so often those are the ones that are made with the, you know, they're a labor of love and they have a lot of, um, a lot of love put into them by everyone on board, as opposed to bigger budget movies where there might be a lot of 
cooks in the kitchen. A lot of producers might have their hands in things. Not everybody on board might be on the same page. I think with mm-hmm. with these more small independent movies, not always, of course, but often it's it's coming more from an earnest place because it's like I only have a little bit of money and I'm going to put everything that I have, all of these resources into this story. And mm-hmm. if it's done well and if it's really honest and coming from the heart, then it resonates with people. And I think... I think that that's a pretty rare and exceptional thing. And so when we find a film that does that, whether it's this one or like the other cult classic that immediately comes to my mind is The Princess Bride, speaking of Mm Andre the Giant, because it was also kind of panned by critics or just not really understood on a larger commercial scale. But everyone that made that movie just understood like this is really special and we love this and so those those things will find their people and they might not find it immediately and their people might not be everyone but eventually they will find each other and fall in love with each other and then you have this really loyal base and to me that's what really defines a cult classic is just that it's not for everyone but the people who it's for are really just there's a real kinship that they feel with it. Yeah. I definitely think initial criticism of a movie is judging it as how does it work as a movie? Is it polished? Does it function? How does it function against other films that are released at the same time? How does it function against the kind of cinematic landscape that surrounds it in that moment in time? Yeah. But that if does films it have follow a certain... the typical storyline that we expect like does it fit these formulas Mm -hmm. that we expect exactly how and and things where this film does really fall down like the the acting is a little bit wooden in places to be honest or the it it is quite a simplistic story that Mm -hmm. gets a bit repetitious in places but what the film has in spades is charm there's a certain charm to it that Mm. i think is what audiences are picking up on at a later point when we talk about cult classics and you're talking about the princess bride i think that's one of the films that springs to my mind but also the rocky horror picture show totally yes Whitnail and i yes definitely yeah. oh Whitnail and i yeah yeah that's a really good one too like films that are a bit weird but they have such a distinct feeling to them that they just really tap into something within a certain kind of person you know There's a saying that a friend of mine says all the time, which is that great art loves itself. Mm -hmm. And I think, of course, there's a certain trap that anything can fall into where maybe something is in love with itself, which I think is a different (laughs) thing. But to say that something loves itself, I think is kind of what we're talking about, that it's like coming from a place of genuine care and affection and investment in what it has to say and what it's doing whether that's just to be weird and raunchy or to tell a sweet love story or to criticize 80s capitalist reaganist bullshit Mm -hmm. i think the point is that it's 
that it's coming from a place of truth. Definitely. I think it's a really nice distinction to make that maybe isn't um, a topic we'll discuss at great length in the podcast, but is interesting for general life, the difference between loving yourself and being in love with yourself. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's a good distinction to make for, for human beings also. Definitely. Yeah. 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 I, I think I really agree with that take. I think a film needs certain elements to become a cult classic mm. that can't really be replicated. I've seen films that have tried to tap into that energy and it's almost like in trying to do it, you feel insincere. If you right. try and... It's like um, friend of the pod, Nicolas Cage. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of people try and cast him in movies and make a Cage film with mm -hmm. him. And they just fall flat because he only works as himself in a f film where he's allowed to be himself without it being referential to him or without it needing to draw this performance from him. Yeah. Yeah, I think as soon as there's any kind of like over manipulation or engineering going on in terms of how something will be received, maybe that's it, that a cult film isn't trying to be a cool, popular film. It's just mm -hmm. trying to be itself. Maybe authenticity yeah. is kind of the secret. Yeah, that's a good point. Because this film definitely, like, as you mentioned, uh, it's quite cheesy mm. and there are things that have been done to reduce the level of cheese mm. that might have made this film better received by critics when it came out yeah. but would have stripped away some of its authenticity and some of its soul yeah totally well speaking of um loving itself I think some of my favorite moments of the film and I want your opinion on them mm -hmm. are one, I love the production design. I think it's a, like an absolute triumph and it makes complete sense why this then sort of got co-opted and repurposed into this branding. Mm -hmm. The art direction was done by William J. Darrell Jr. and Daniel A. Lamino. And the prosthetic makeup was done by Michael Mills. I didn't really know any of the other work because... I feel like I only ever follow directors and, you know, actors or cinematographers. Mm -hmm. But the prosthetics, the hideous ghoulish makeup mm -hmm. and the, the like stripped down black and white billboards and the messaging just it's like it's the heart of this film almost as much as anything else. Yeah, it's so memorable. And I have to say the I didn't realize it was prosthetic, the alien faces. It doesn't feel like prosthetic. It feels like it's it feels like it's sort of hovering, you know? It doesn't feel like mm -hmm. you have an actual human face with makeup on it. It feels like the face is missing. <laughs> so it, yeah. it it they accomplished exactly what what it's meant to feel like. And I, I was gonna ask you how they did that because I couldn't tell is this an early form of CGI? Is it, is it a makeup effect? But so, was there was there an actual prosthetic mask that the actors wore? So John Carpenter loves practical effects. I think it's like one of the hallmarks of his filmmaking. Mm -hmm. Have you seen the film The Thing that he did with Kurt Russell? No, on the kind I haven't. Of like 
high space. So that features like a monster from space that's really, really upsetting and disturbing. Mm. Um, and all of that was done with um, prosthetics and with makeup and with kind of physical effects. Yeah. And it makes it feel really distressing and really real in a way that the film was remade in the mid 2000s i want to say with oh. cgi and it looked terrible like it just it wasn't quite a shot for shot remake but it was near as damn it that and they just switched all the practical effects for cgi because they thought well that would be we can do so much more with cgi now so it's going to be better mm. and it just didn't have this visceral disgusting feeling that you can get with something that your eyes can see is real no, see, this and... confirms what I've been saying for for years, which is that having a practical effect is just always going to be more impactful and feel more real mm. and have more character to it than CGI. Like, I don't, I, I'm just, I have this kind of personality. People are like, look at this new technology. And I'm like, why do we need that? That's stupid. Like, I'm just that person who has to be like a killjoy about any sort of extraneous you know like touch screens i'm just like why i don't mm -hmm. so so that's also that's just me but especially with art and with films it's why i love jim henson so much and puppets it's like you're mm. never never gonna like cgi yoda no it just, you're <laughs> yeah. never gonna get the character in cgi that you would get in a puppet it's just it's just yeah. not the same we need that tangibility I think that's also why CGI works so well to augment things that are there or to support things, to be like the background, to do things that you're not focusing on. Yeah. Because when your eyes are really focused on something, you need that that reality, that physical element that's there and being interacted with. Yeah, you know, I think um, Gollum in the Lord of the Rings mm. movies is a really good example of a, a kind of hybrid of the two. And that was really yeah. a triumph of of special effects for that reason, because you had a real actor putting their actual character into it. It wasn't just computer generated. Mm -hmm. But of course, the the image itself is is also just a triumph of CGI special effects. I mean, it was it was very seamless. Yeah, but I I do think that. This movie is a great example of how impactful practical effects can be. And even, yeah, even if, even with the advances in technology that we've had now since 1988, I think if, if somebody remade this movie now and tried to make the faces all CGI, I don't think it would mm -hmm. be as scary as this is. I think also that awareness of your limitations feels like a very B movie sensibility. Mm. That we don't have extended shots of them in their gross masks. Yeah. It's used really sparingly. And so whenever it happens, it's really unsettling. And it's not there long enough for you to see like, oh, you can kind of see the lines where the makeup blends into the mask. Or, you know, it just, it's mm. not, it's not overplayed in a way that I think if this was remade today, there would be CG. And they say, well, look what we can do. We can have like a, a shot where we revolve around this alien creature and see its face in great deep detail. And it's like, it just, it just wouldn't work. Right. Well, I think that's kind of a trick with a lot of 
horror or just any moment where something's supposed to be scary is that mm -hmm. often in a monster movie or an alien movie, it's really terrifying up until the monster is revealed and then it kind of mm -hmm. loses its, you, you know, the suspense is ruined and it's so rare that you can show something and have it actually live up to what we would imagine, which is so much scarier yeah. and more threatening. So I think in general, when you're trying to make things scary, the less, less is more. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I think also with the shootouts and the violence that happens in this film, it also is, if it were done now, I'm sure it'd be done much more sleekly and much more cleanly, but it has a certain, um, trying to look for something that's a synonym for B-movie sensibility, but mm. a low-budget sort of realism feel that we understand this is a movie, it's like theatre, that no one is actually getting shot, these are all practical effects, but it has this um, sort of harrowing, distressing feeling in a way that uh, like a shootout in, a, in an action movie doesn't usually have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was wondering about the relationship between pro wrestling and this movie, but also sort of B-movies in general. Can you talk mm -hmm. about that a bit? So I never watched wrestling growing up, but I was aware of it. And I think initially I had this hesitancy towards it, probably in the same way that lots of people who are film critics would have this hesitancy towards b-movies of oh it's silly it's over the top it's not real and it's not art mm. in a way and i think as a result a lot of i missed out probably on quite a lot of shit but i did also miss out on a lot of gems as well mm -hmm. the, the acting career of hulk hogan uh the films of the rock you know like these are things that i um <laughs> that my life has been made better for picking up in later age and i think there is this sort of weird link between the two so i mean wrestling is acting they have this concept called kayfabe which is the idea of you it's basically like wrestling method acting that the character you play in on tv needs to be who you are when you're in public mm -hmm. because you are a personality that occupies these spaces mm -hmm. and i think it lends itself so well to larger than life action roles because you've basically been living the life of a action star for the last 10 years before you did this role yeah it it feels to me the the word that feels so obvious when talking about pro wrestling is camp yes exactly and it's funny because i think that's why i feel like okay obviously like pro wrestling feels very it's for boys and it's for men and it's all about being a macho man. But somehow simultaneously, it feels very gay. <laughs> it's like, mm -hmm. like I'm, I, I feel like I always see it and I'm like, this is, this is like gay, but packaged for like straight people. I don't mm -hmm. know, for like straight men who are maybe a little gay, but they don't want to, I don't know. It just feels like this is camp, but for straight boys. Or maybe yeah. straight boy. Do you know what I mean? Definitely. I think that word is really interesting. Um, because I think gay and camp get 
conflated together or used as synonyms quite a lot. Mm. And it wasn't until relatively recently that I actually looked up what the definition of camp was and why it's not quite the same thing. Camp is is a really interesting word that I think a lot of people struggle to define or to understand. I think people yeah. get it wrong a lot. Yeah, and so we have a in the UK a concept of like camp comedy or um god what's it there's Frank Spencer like the sort of comic figure and he's married and he's married to a woman but he's really affected. And it's the affectation that you're laughing out at, which mm-hmm. can often, I think, which we also associate with gay culture in some ways. Mm-hmm. But the definition of a camp that I have here is deliberate affectation or exaggeration of style, especially of popular or out- outdated style for ironic or humorous effect. And I feel like it's that deliberate adoption of style, the affectation, how over the top it is, that is what wrestling is at its core. Yeah, so I don't know the exact etymology of the word camp or when we started using it that way, but there's a famous essay uh, from 1964 by Susan Sontag called Notes on Camp, where she Mm -hmm. attempts to define that word and what it means and the many nuances of it. And it's, it's a very interesting essay that I that I really recommend. And as far as I know, I feel like she kind of brought that word into the public consciousness mm-hmm. with that essay. And we've sort of been grappling with it ever since. Um, I mean, I found out about this essay because a few years ago, it was the theme for the Met Gala. The theme was camp. Mm-hmm. And it was such a just absolute shit show because nobody understood what that meant. <laughs> So people's outfits were just all over the place. And a handful of people, I would say, succeeded in being camp in their outfit choices. But a lot of people, I think, just didn't didn't get the assignment. And I do I do have a little bit of sympathy because it's not it's not really that easy to put your finger on what is camp and what is something else. Mm hmm. Or it's, I think it's really difficult to recreate yourself and come up with a new camp because it needs to feel personal as well. I think that if you're just... I don't know if you can dress up as someone else being camp. You have to be camp with reference to who you are and your standing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, it makes me think of other great B-movie artists like John Waters, who I would say is the master mm-hmm. of camp as well. Most definitely. And it's it's funny because I don't think that, you know, John Waters and John Carpenter feel like they're such different artists, but they they don't feel conflicted at all to me. Like, I, I would imagine that they would both be happy to be put in the same category together. You know, they feel like... Yeah. They feel like contemporaries somehow. Yeah, definitely. I think also in the like subversive nature of their work. Yeah. That they they feel like they're um part of the same scene. Yeah. I wonder if also there's an element of uh them being grouped differently and that you'd have to then retroactively put them back together. 
because of what we think about their work because of who they are. Mm-hmm. So John Carpenter's movies, I definitely would say, fall into the, you know, man movie category of mm-hmm. people with guns, things explode, there's aliens or there's, you know, a political conspiracy mm-hmm. or serial killers. Whereas John Waters has things that are absurd or disgusting or shocking, mm-hmm. but it's almost like a different a different flavor. Like he's using a different palette and the palette of... John Waters is one we've ascribed to being like, oh, he's a gay filmmaker. And so he makes movies that, you know, are about the gay experience or reference his own views or feelings or thoughts in the same way that John Carpenter does. But that doesn't mean that the end product they're making is actually all that dissimilar. Yes, totally. It feels like John Waters uses sex as his sort of subversive material. Like that's the that's the thing he likes to make shocking mm-hmm. um, as a form of subversion. And John Carpenter, I guess, maybe paints in action and violence rather than in mm-hmm. sex. Yeah. But that they're both doing a similar thing. Well, they're both exploring the same world as well. Like they're u- using a certain lens to look at a very similar world. I think they make, they started making films at very similar times as well. Yeah, I guess I would the the movies I know John Waters for I think are mostly the 90s, so I would guess mm-hmm. that maybe there's like a 10-year gap between them. So actually Waters is an older filmmaker. He started before oh. Carpenter. He started 10 years before him, but that yeah, like something like Hairspray came out in the same year as um, They Live. Oh, crazy. I don't know why I thought of it as later. Maybe yeah. because there was the remake and everything and and the Broadway show were all yeah. a lot later. Okay, yeah, I guess, that, I guess that does fit then. So I think one of the sad, inadvertent things that has happened to this film as a result of the milieu that Carpenter operates in. You know, he makes these masculine movies with, you know, rugged action heroes, Mm. and maybe some people ignore the camp. I think, I don't want to say that people get the wrong message from them, but I feel like people watch them and miss the point or use them to make almost like a subversive in almost like a subversive move they get the opposite message from the movie Mm. and so it's my understanding that Carpenter is quite annoyed that some people on the far right have taken this movie and run with it as an example of you know that the world is controlled by a shady cabal Mm. who we must overthrow yeah, so we we kind of talked about this in the Eyes Wide Shut episode, the sort of trajectory, uh, and also in the Strange Love episode, actually, the the trajectory from waking up to capitalism being a lie to fascist neo-Nazi. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you wouldn't think that that would be the, the that those two things would, would lead to each other, but so often it seems like they do. Yeah. 
it feels like taking this on a really, really surface level viewing of the movie has an evil elite of aliens. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to take this at face value and think the film is about an evil elite of aliens who are running the world and that that's a parallel for the world we live in. It's the lizard people. Yeah, exactly. There was a uh, let me find let me just find this comment under the stream that I watched this movie on. Oh God. <laughs> I'm scared. <laughs> yeah. Uh, where is it? Uh, it says it's true, but the evil goes much deeper. Please watch this video and it'll open your eyes to what is really happening in the world. Oh, no. We have only seconds left before the satanic family bloodlines do it again. <laughs> it goes on like it's a paragraph of just insanity and a link to a video conspiracy that I haven't watched. Yeah. Uh, but the comment after it is headlined, the fuck? And then, <laughs> are you okay? <laughs> no, is the answer. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um. Yeah, let's get into this. So it kind of reminds me of how people will write sort of anti-establishment rock songs and then mm -hmm. 30 years later... Republicans are playing those songs at like the RNC and those artists have to be like, no, I hate you. That was about you. Do not use my song. You do not have permission to use it. Like that these things get sort of mm -hmm. co-opted into the exact cause that they're actually criticizing. Yeah, definitely. Who was the most recent example? I think it was. Yeah, there was one the... just a couple of days ago. Yeah, D I think it's D. Schneider from Twisted Sister. Yes, exactly. They have that song. Uh, We're not going to take it. Right, right. Uh, and the this is I think this is the funniest thing because he he's incredibly vocal. He was also in front of oh god was it the is it the Supreme Court when they had the like um, oh the the Tippi Gore, Tip Gore thing again. exactly yeah yeah where they when they came up with the whole parental warning label for cds exactly and they brought all yeah. these rock stars in front and asked them to like defend their yeah. moral like integrity mm -hmm. <laughs> or something it was yeah that was the whole that was the whole thing that happened in the 90s yeah. But okay, so but he so was one of those people who got... He was one up. of those guys who was brought up onto the stand. Okay. And um, I think it was led by Frank Zappa, but also John Denver made an appearance. All of these, mm -hmm. you know, big, famous musicians with integrity. Right. But so D. Schneider is famous for not taking any shit on the internet. Mm -hmm. And people had been using We're Not Gonna Take It as like a, a rallying call for their kind of anti-choice agenda yes and he said the first verse of that song the first lyrics of that verse are we've got the right to choose and there ain't no way we'll lose it mm -hmm. yeah and yeah just post like this like what did you think this song was about yeah it feels like um maybe this is kind of a danger with the b-movie nature of of this in particular but it's not it's not mm -hmm. You know, no film, I think, is safe from this effect, but that if something sure. is pretty simplistic, then it becomes easier to just sort of project whatever agenda onto it. So mm -hmm. it was intended with this with this message of capitalism 
is bullshit and we're all a slave to money and it's bad. But that that could be really easily just sort of brushed aside and it could become, oh, yeah, we are being controlled by the Jews <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. And and yeah. it can actually become it, it's, it's weird how there's this spectrum almost like as a culture for for centuries or at least for the last century it feels like we've been really walking this line in so much of our art of trying to figure out like okay we know that capitalism is bad we know to varying degrees that we're being exploited we're being controlled Mm -hmm. but it feels like on the one end of the spectrum you have just like total total conformity and like not being in any way critical of that world or completely like drinking the Kool-Aid. But then the opposite extreme is right-wing fascism. It's like a circle and everything leads back to fascism somehow. Whichever direction you go, that's still where you end up. Yeah, definitely. I think you're right that it's something B-movies have to watch out for because when something is superficially simplistic you then just need to have more tools available to you as an audience member to to parse it and to work through what the film is about and you know analyze it right but also you feel this responsibility as a filmmaker to um check that no one's taking it the wrong way which you shouldn't have to do you should be able to make the art that you want to make without fear that someone is going to use this as a propaganda piece to to perpetuate the exact cause that you're criticizing exactly yeah yeah Yeah, i'm wondering what the actual antidote would be to get out of that circle of fascism it feels like i think exactly as you're saying like it feels like the missing piece is the critical thinking part and that exactly if you if you just don't examine the situation you're in at all then you're not thinking critically but if you rail against it without fully kind of seeing what's going on, then you're just as much a victim and you're just as much, or not a victim, but you're just as much a pawn in that scheme and just being Mm -hmm. controlled or, or, yeah, you're still just buying into the propaganda, even as you think that you're seeing past it and and seeing the conspiracy. Yeah, I think the fundamental issue I have with the global cabal idea of all oh, the, you know, the globalists are coming and that they've ruined everything mm-hmm. in our pristine society is it looks at everything that's wrong with the world and acknowledges that things are fucked up. Mm-hmm. But the solution isn't to change the system because the system works. It's that there are a couple of people ruining the system. Right. And then once they're gone, what will continue living in capitalism? Was that the plan? It's just not right. taking the like logical next step of it's easier to believe that everything would be perfect now if it weren't for these interlopers interfering in your society. And if we got rid of them, then we'd all work ourselves to death happily. I just... Yeah, doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Yeah, like it feels like the actual opposite of the late stage capitalist hellscape that we live in is a kind mm-hmm. of socialist, pacifist anarchy, I would say, mm-hmm. is like where I would kind of envision things 
being able to ultimately evolve to is like not needing to be controlled and just having fairness and equality and harmony between people that just occurs naturally because that's in our nature to to be that way as opposed to because it's being like imposed on us mm-hmm. but that some form of law or structure might need to exist in getting there mm-hmm. and yeah it just feels like it's it's like kind of like you were saying it's as if somebody sees like they like there's these stepping stones and they're on the first stepping stone and they're like, ah, I see that this is bullshit. And you're like, right, now come over here. And they're like, no, 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 I figured it all out. <laughs> and they just stay mm-hmm. there. So yeah. there's a there's a small amount of truth in that there's always some bullshit that that is actually being called out, but that then there's a whole bunch of more bullshit coming with it that is then is then looked at like totally uncritically. Yeah, I also wonder whether an issue as to why films end end up reproducing this way of thinking, whether intentionally or not, mm-hmm. is that in a film something needs to be overcome, and especially in a, an action film, it's like, well, how do you overcome the problem? You you establish that one group of people or one thing needs to be conquered or destroyed for the world to be right again, mm-hmm. and how you resolve it is with violence you know you kill that thing or you destroy it Mm -hmm. and then that's really visual and it makes sense to us as people Mm -hmm. as a oh right well he just needs to go and blow up the transmitter right if he goes into the tv tower and you know shoots the aliens and blows up the transmitter then the world is fixed and it's really nice and simplistic (laughs) and maybe that's why we enjoy it it's satisfying to know that within the internal logic of the film like great that, that's that then. The world now finally sees things the way they are because of this necessary act of violence. Mm-hmm. But that I don't know how you necessarily go about showing that on screen, showing rejection of norms or dissatisfaction with the world or writing some sort of wrong without using that language, at least in the genre of action, although I guess in lots of different um genres as well yeah i think this is my main criticism of this film and it's also Mm -hmm. i think the thing that makes it vulnerable to this kind of slanderous co-opting which is that it it creates this other as the enemy Mm -hmm. and that oh the problem is that there's these alien it's this alien race and Okay, maybe yeah. there are some humans who are also part of the problem, but this there's just this inherent evil that is totally mm-hmm. separate from me and you. And yeah. I think that that's... A, it, I think that it discredits the film a bit because... The, uh, you know, of course, it's yes, that's kind of the language of sci-fi, right, is that you have an alien or you have an other, like there's some sort of monster. And these exist as sort of archetypal symbols, and it's not necessarily, mm-hmm. you know, intended in such a literal fucking way that there are lizard people or whatever the fuck. <laughs> but 
Um, you lose, I think, something like a, a layer of nuance, which is that we are part of the problem and well, actually, we are the problem. But even if you even if you wanted to sort of externalize it in the form of some kind of infiltrating force or species to make it mm. more threatening, I feel like it's missing some element of like self examination that Nada never has yeah. to really look at am I a part of this and what am I doing? And that's where I think it's it's interesting that the original source material had him actually being an alien himself or or part of that because it, it feels mm -hmm. like that's a little bit what this movie was missing for me. Yeah, definitely. I think that the film sets everything up in black and white. I think it's a really nice touch that when he puts on the sunglasses, everything is in black and white. Right. Like it strips away all of the the nuance from everything. Yeah. And people are either aliens or humans. Mm. And the same with the characterization. He is like this muscly, blonde, every man who just does a hard day's work and, you know, he's unassuming and he'll get along with you if you get along with him. Mm -hmm. And the villains are like... Yeah, lit lit literal aliens. You can't get more other than that. Yeah. And then it's like this conflict between them where one side is good and one side is bad. And one side is responsible for everything and the other side is effectively entirely innocent. I mean, we see that he's like a, a vagrant or like an iterant worker. That he's not wealthy, he's not sophisticated, and he's not receiving any of the benefits of capitalism mm -hmm. living in it. Yeah. It reminds me of the film Invasion of the Body Snatchers. They did a remake of that with Donald Sutherland, but that movies with aliens often, I mean, all movies with kind of fancy characters tap into fears that run through society at the time. Mm -hmm. And I feel like communism was a really big fear at the time, this idea of like a parallel world where they're just like us, uh, but but different and evil. I think that influenced a lot of the science fiction of the of the fifties and sixties, and I feel like they live has some of that. This idea of like the other that blends in and that is getting away with it, and we just need to sh we just need to be shown the truth, and then we'll we'll see them and how they've infiltrated our society. Yeah, I can't remember exactly what it was, but I remember reading something once that talked about how. There's a correlation you can draw between whether we have vampire movies or zombie movies and whether mm -hmm. the republic like the Democrats or the Republicans are in power <laughs> in America like whether we have a Democrat or Republican president in in the states like that I'm trying to I'm trying to work out which one is which, but that one of them feels I mean, like this sort of liberal threat. And the other one is this, I, I it feels like from a progressive point of view that zombies are the scarier thing because they talk about just being sort of blind, like blindly consuming mm -hmm. and losing any sense of love or community or humanity. Yeah. And then that a vampire could be seen as the vilification of like, you know, the gay agenda. 
<laughs> like we just <laughs> want to be hot and take, live forever right? and be young and beautiful and have lots and lots of sex. And that's all that we care about. <laughs> I like that that's... Uh, see, I had the opposite take that oh, I thought okay. that... Um, that zombie films would be like this fear of the unwashed mas- masses all around you <laughs> who are like this like horde of fucking poor people who want your stuff <laughs> and your brains and that um, vampire films are like being afraid of Matt Gates drinking the blood of your teenage children. Mm, but vampires are kind of inherently like glamorous and elitist to me. Like they're very edgy. Like I feel like a vampire... They're just it's, European. Yeah, it's... they're more European, exactly. Like they have style. <laughs> they probably read books and drink cognac. And they probably have or free something. healthcare. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, vampires famous for their healthcare. Yeah, we're we're behind even them in in the oh. US. <laughs> <laughs> so, what year did you say the original and the remake? was of Invaders of the Body Snatchers? Was it also 80s, the remake? So the original was 56, and the remake was 78. Yeah, it it does feel like whatever our overarching anxiety is as a culture gets translated somehow into who we see as the the predator or the threat or the villain in any given... Mm sort of cultural era. Yeah. I remember uh, Christmas one year, I think, I want to say it was 2016. Um, It was whatever year the first of the sort of new generation of Star Wars movies came out. Do you know? The the newest new or like, so not the 2001, but like the... Right, like not the prequels, but the one after that. 2016 maybe? Yeah, I think it was, yeah. Um, and I went to see it with my family on Christmas Day. And I had been out of the country for a few years and I hadn't really been to like a major American cinema in a while. And I got this sort of culture shock moment as we're watching the trailers. And obviously it's Christmas Day. We're going to see Star Wars. You know, they're only showing the most, the like most uber Hollywood movies movie trailers that there are <laughs> at this moment and it was it, it I felt a little bit like I was wearing the sunglasses and everyone mm-hmm. else is just like <laughs> eating popcorn and they're like what's wrong with you and I was like do you not see how every single one of these movies is about an alien race coming that Americans need to destroy to protect their freedom and their family like this is propaganda mm-hmm. This is all no. fucking propaganda. And and everyone is like, Stacey, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, it's fucking Christmas and we're watching Star Wars. Like, get over it. Yeah. And I'm just like, no, you just need to see. I, I was I was the not a character just trying to get them to put the sunglasses on. Mm-hmm. Um, which, yes, I'm sure was was very annoying. But there is something about I think particularly science fiction that the language that it uses is the language of of othering. I mean, we're literally yeah. we literally use the word alien to describe a person who's from another country. Mm-hmm. 
so there's there's something about that that I think even if it's not at all intended to be used in a racist or xenophobic or fascist way, it really super lends itself to that. So even if that wasn't the original intention, it can be co-opted in that way. It raises the question as an artist, how much should you seek to ensure that your movies can't be taken the wrong way because i feel like a lot of what makes a film good is also ambiguity the ability to read into it what you want that mm. you know it, like one that sci-fi has sci-fi in particular has this kind of holding a mirror up effect often you know if it's a dystopia or it's an alternate society or an mm. culture or whatever it like allows us to uh, use that to look at our own world and way of life but also that there's this um that if you switch the mirror out for a painting or an image that you are showing an audience that doesn't allow them that room to interpret it also then loses its ability to tell us anything about ourselves yeah i I do kind of wish, I I think that if this movie had ended, it would have changed it and maybe it would have made it a little less palatable or a little bit darker. But I do think if the movie had ended with him seeing himself in that light or us seeing him in that mm -hmm. light, that it would invite more of an examination for the audience of are you are you a part of this thing and you need to also be careful rather than feeling like oh it's us against them and i yeah. obviously know the truth and everyone else is evil as opposed to as opposed to seeing that gray in between of of maybe i also need to be careful that i don't get sucked into something like this yeah, and I think there are blueprints out there for it. Um, Fahrenheit 451, the book, mm -hmm. and I guess to an extent the film as well. Or Equilibrium, the movie with Christian Bale, oh, which wait. is like a poor man's Fahrenheit 451. Is that with Ethan Hawke? has the same... Hmm? Is Ethan Hawke in that? Sean Bean is definitely in it. Maybe Ethan oh, Hawke is in it as the villain. Okay, I think I'm mixing it up with... What's that movie where everyone is attractive? Is it Minority Report? Gattaca. Yeah. Okay. I think I'm... Is Ethan Hawke yeah. in that? He's in Gattaca, yeah. Gattaca. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Very similar, those three movies. Yeah. <laughs> the, one of those movies about attractive people in a dystopian future. In a dystopian future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but with um, Fahrenheit 451 or equilibrium in particular mm. the protagonist is part of the system who ha he like uh in 451 he's a fireman he has yes. been doing all the book burning right. and buying into everything right and he realizes his place within that and then steps away from it yeah and the same with uh equilibrium he is the like emotion police who stops people accessing works of art and then realizes are oh, actually Emotions are good, and I want to have emotions, and I need to do loads of kung fu to make <laughs> right. sure that happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It it reminds me of um, 
a distinction between, um, are you familiar with a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman? I'm not, no. Um, very good, very interesting book that was published in 1985. And the author, a guy named Neil Postman, talks about how we tend to hold up 1984 by George Orwell as the sort of ultimate dystopian future story. Um, and, you know, we use the word Orwellian to describe a, a, a world in which people are being surveyed or controlled, surveilled or controlled, rather. And Postman talks about 1984 in comparison to... Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Mm -hmm. So George Orwell's 1984 was written in 19, well, written in 1948, published in 1949. It looks at a dark future through the lens of people being oppressed and controlled, where Mm-hmm. You know, you know that the po- the powers that be are right there in your face telling you there's nothing you can do. We control you. And the best you can hope for is either to find some position of power within that scheme or just keep your head down and do nothing because there's nothing you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, but we often forget about Aldous Huxley's dystopian future in Brave New World which came out slightly earlier, so in 1932. And in that world, people are being controlled just as much, but it's not because someone's telling them what to do it's be- or because they lack freedom. It's actually because they have too much freedom and they're in the sense that they're just being given everything they could possibly want and they almost become slaves to their own pleasure and their own stupidity. Mm-hmm. And looking at stories like Fahrenheit 451 or these other things where somebody realizes, oh, I'm part of this problem, like I'm doing this thing and now I can see that it's wrong and that I actually want something more. I think when you have a super simplistic sort of villain, it creates less space for that kind of self-examination of like, oh, am I maybe the victim of my worst impulses or am I maybe being Mm. programmed in some way that I'm not conscious of? Yeah, I think the film, to my mind, that's what the film is about. It's an indictment of capitalism. Mm -hmm. Even before we appreciate that there are aliens, it's this idea that it's not working, people are unhappy and destitute and just can't live. Mm -hmm. And society, as we know, is falling apart. And that the aliens are a representation of those worst urges and drives and then the humans who are collaborating are people who know better but will go along anyway because nothing can be done Mm -hmm. yeah the kind of passivity or resignation that exactly the resignation yeah there's just nothing Um, yeah with with a final scene where Holly confronts him and we find out she's been a double agent the whole time mm-hmm. when we know from the start that something's up with her but just the disappointment and I think also the helplessness that we see in 
Nada's eyes as it's like, oh, you too. And that he's almost, he has kind of been a victim of his own assumptions in that moment that he's constantly trying to save her. Mm-hmm. And he's constantly underestimating her. Even after we've seen that she's thrown him through a window, um, he's still, like he, it's like he can't help himself. He's like fitting into the world around him in a certain way and engaging with it in a certain way. Wait, can you explain that a little bit? When Nada first meets Holly, mm-hmm. he kind of assumes that she's helpless and he's really aware of the fact that he's kidnapping her. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't ascribe any power to her in the way he thinks about her. Like, he apologizes, he tries to be civil and decent, mm-hmm. but he kind of underestimates her throughout that scene, not in any massively overt way, but he just doesn't see the th- different modes of behavior that she's trying she tries to gain his trust there's an element of seduction she's indicating that she like there's lots of just different things that happen in that Mm -hmm. exchange between them yeah until he's let his guard down and then she pushes him through a plate glass window and he like tumbles down the hill yeah and then she calls the police and we see her see the glasses on the floor yeah and we initially believe in that moment i think as he does he so wants to believe that she will see the glasses and instantly see the truth because she doesn't know the truth already. Right. And and it, he, that he's got something to show people. I think that his um, the fight in the alleyway mm. with Frank is him just being desperate for someone to see the world and he's so convinced that no one else sees the world the way he does or that, that he's part of the, like this few who do. Yeah. That when he finally meets up with her again and we discover that she's um, a double agent, he's so obsessed with finding her and saving her, even when he realizes that, oh, she works in the TV center, Mm -hmm. the TV center that they're in, where everyone's an alien, or not everyone, but where the aliens operate. Mm -hmm. He still can't see that, well, maybe she would have known about this before. Maybe something's up with, oh, well, like, Holly works here. Where is she? He's constantly searching for her, and he just trusts her uh, unquestioningly. Mm -hmm. And I feel a big part of all of his interactions with her are predicated on him sort of being a part of the system that he's a part of. Like, he only really knows how to solve his problems through violence. Mm -hmm. And that he doesn't... He just has a really sort of simplistic view of everything, even prior to discovering that the world actually is all in black and white. Right. Yeah, that's true. In a weird way, he's almost underestimating her by Mm -hmm. trusting her. And also not giving her agency as well. Like, I think that there's a lot of dramatic tension that's gained from us seeing how she behaves or yeah, her on the phone call, that we are slightly suspicious of her. Mm-hmm. But the penny started to drop for me in the scene where, oh, well, he's just broken into the alien headquarters, and like, how did she get there? What is she doing there? Mm-hmm. And that he doesn't stop to think for a moment, like, oh, this is this is weird. He's just so overjoyed to see her, and all it takes is her to be like, oh, yeah, no, definitely. Like, I, I saw the truth, and like, I'm in now, and I'm with you. Mm-hmm. There's like this naivety also about the movement in general like when they get broken down that they're so 
convinced that there will be aliens who come to break them up rather than that they would be betrayed. Right. Well, especially because evidently no one else survived the ambush other than the three of them. Mm -hmm. But somebody must have alerted people to their whereabouts for that ambush to happen. So for her to be one of the few, if not only, survivors um, is pretty suspicious. What was your favorite scene in the movie then? So the scene to me that definitely stood out was the fight scene. Yeah. Um, between Nada and Frank. It starts out... Um, it starts out pretty standard fight scene. It's kind of funny um, because <laughs> he's approaching him as a friend and trying to get him to see this thing. And yet, I don't know, y- you sort of expect like Frank is getting hostile and you would expect Nada to be like, no, let's not fight. We need mm-hmm. to whatever. But he doesn't. He just like fully, <laughs> um, fully just commits to mm-hmm. kicking the shit out of his friend as he is still trying to convince him that they're not enemies. And yeah. so something about that is is just really hilarious. But then after about three minutes, you just kind of wonder if it's ever going to end or if yeah. this is just going to be the whole movie that they just keep kicking the shit out of each other for another, like, hour. Um, <laughs> so, I, I mean, of course... The fact that it goes on and on for so long, it does feel like this reference to like we spoke about the campiness of pro wrestling and the Mm -hmm. the cheesiness of it. But I I also actually felt like it really hammered in this point about people who are being oppressed fighting amongst themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And I think if you just had a normal length fight scene, I don't know if that would have sunk in, really. Like, mm-hmm. the fact that it goes on and on <laughs> feels yeah. like it's a really, really hammering in this idea that um, rather than uniting against this force that's oppressing us, that we're we're fighting amongst each other... Um, Yeah, that's my favorite scene as well. It's a real standout. And there's just something sort of poetic about two working men who are friends kicking the shit out of each other. You know, mm-hmm. one black, one white, beating each other for an alleyway for six straight minutes yeah. while the world is going on outside and being run by aliens. Right. Yeah. Right. Felt like definite allegory. I think also it goes through certain, because it's so long and because I've watched this movie a couple of times in succession now, you feel the kind of different energies within it, that it starts off and it's frustration, then they really want to hurt each other, then there's the moment where he mm-hmm. accidentally breaks the <laughs> the window of his car and there's like sincere like, oh shit, I'm sorry, <laughs> and then <laughs> right. they're back into it again. Yeah, and then like, and then he's just laughing and he's like, and it's like... It's- I don't think that 
Frank is ever laughing, but mm-hmm. Nada at one point is just like cracking up, and then he's like, "Oh no, but I'm sorry," and then it just keeps going. <laughs> yeah, and that <laughs> final moment where you think it's over, I think I think that's just it. You think the fight is over. You think he's lost, and you yeah. see Frank like going over and being like, "Oh God!" Like he's clutching his back. He's like, "Oh, thank God, that's over." And then you hear this like scream as he runs from off camera and knocks him down again. It's just like, <laughs> for God's sake. <laughs> Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Yeah, and then it and then it ending with him just like shoving these sunglasses on his face. Mhm. I yeah, do enjoy it. Yeah, it's great. Did How you have any that... runners up for favorite scene? Oh, okay. Um I'm going to touch upon one of them when I talk about my favorite shot because I mm-hmm. think that there's like a a section I also really liked the um the scene in the supermarket where he's acting out Mm -hmm. there's something about roddy piper as an actor he just feels so like larger than life and ridiculous Mm -hmm. but also sort of believable as this kind of like meathead everyman yeah he's very sincere yeah how about yeah i agree i think that was the scene where the creepiness of the aliens really hit me was with this Mm -hmm. old woman when we first realized that she's got this because when she first said the line i've got one who can see Mm -hmm. for a second i thought she was just saying that to him and i was Mm -hmm. trying to make sense of that and then i realized oh she's saying that into a into a microphone Mm -hmm. oh shit and then you see all of these aliens like walking together towards him and it's this um very creepy and introduces a new level of threat that it's not just that mm. there's these aliens it's that they also can communicate with each other and they also uh have the the mechanisms in place to just immediately squash you if they see yeah. that you've started to figure them out so the the threat just gets like super amplified really quickly in that scene. And uh, I don't know, just something about this old lady's voice saying that is really, it's really scary. Yeah, it is really scary. How about your favorite shot then? So shot was the hardest one for me to, Mm -hmm. for me to figure out a favorite, not because there weren't, you know, I think it's a very well shot movie, um, but just there wasn't necessarily like a standout to me right away. Mm-hmm. But in the end, I, I had to go with um, one of the final shots of the movie, which is the the middle finger. Yeah. It's it's in keeping with the tone of the film and it's just a nice fuck you for him to go out on. Mm-hmm. And the way that it's it's not even like a very like he's so tired in that moment, like it's almost like a. He's like barely able to do it, but he does mm-hmm. it. It's, uh, I think it's a nice sort of ending note for the film. Yeah, it's a really nice moment of defiance. Yeah. What was your favorite shot? I agree with you. This is the hardest thing to do because none of the shots stood out to me. Not that they weren't good, but it was consistent and I felt like it was rare. Mm-hmm. There was a moment that I thought the visuals really telling the story. Mm-hmm. Um, I 
I think it has to be the newsstand. So that whole mm. scene was a runner-up for me, for sure, when he's mm-hmm. first putting on the sunglasses and taking them off and seeing the world as it is for the first time. Yeah. There's just this... It feels really subtle and really over the top at the same time, like the incredulity on his face as he's putting them on and then sliding them down off his nose again. But mm. as he looks upon the newsstand and the camera just kind of dollies across all the all of the magazines and they just all have the same kind of horrid consumerist messages on them. And yeah. that's when it really sunk into me like, oh, shit, they they really do run everything. Right. Yeah, and the the way that it's it's everywhere, it's inescapable. It's like everywhere you look in that shot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of the shots of the billboards to me were also impactful in a similar way because I think I think everyone knows what it feels like to see that for what it is and to like look out mm-hmm. in the world and see all these advertisements and just feel like god, this is all such bullshit. Yeah. Like it is it is depressing. And so seeing it all revealed in that in this very literal way, I think it speaks to something that is actually quite relatable. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I, like my other runner up for shot was the final shot of the movie where the camera pans down from this woman to the alien that she's having sex with and he asks you know like baby what's the matter mm-hmm. just yeah. like the the like final like oh gross <laughs> like this is right just... <laughs> yeah 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 i think it's a great i think it's a smart way to end because it's simultaneously disturbing but also funny so it, it mm-hmm. gives you you're, you're talking about the sort of christ-like this kind of martyrdom of mm-hmm. Nada at the end, kind of sacrificing himself. I think you could have ended the movie there with the middle finger, but it would yeah. feel maybe a little bit too self-aggrandizing. Yeah. And so the fact that you have this kind of comical sequence after that with everyone waking up and freaking out and then this gross but funny um, sex joke at the end is... I think smart to have that to have that before the end just to kind of lighten the mood a little bit. Yeah, definitely. And to bring it back to the collective rather than it being all about Nada as this sort exactly. of like hero. Yeah. Yeah, I think it refocuses the film on okay, now he's done his job, it's up to us, it's up to the whole world to see through this now. Right. Yeah, exactly. And your favorite line then? So there's only one answer to this question, Adam. (laughs) (laughs) And that is, I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubblegum. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, um, that that was mine as well. Runner-up was... um, I'm not daddy's little boy anymore when he's telling the story about that he and Frank are kind of talking cross purposes about the world and how fucked up it is and how now both they believe in aliens after they've just kicked the crap out of each other. Uh-huh. And the line is said so with such sincerity and it's such a silly line, 
for mm. this like enormous mountain of a man to say. Uh, yeah, there's just something like it's something hilarious, but also like yeah, he means business. It like it's just really camp that moment. Right. Yeah, that's how I feel about the bubblegum line. Like the word bubblegum. Mm-hmm. It's like I saw somewhere on the internet once. Like, there's no. It's not possible to say the word bubbles angrily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like bubblegum is similar. It's just a funny, cute. It's just an inherently cute and funny word. And so to have it being said in the context of ass kicking mm-hmm. is um. It's just you. It's just irresistible. Yeah. It was also improvised on the day. Really. Yeah, he just came up with that on the spot. Well, I guess, you know, as a pro wrestler, you probably have to have some one-liners like that. Some of those in in your back pocket, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's brilliant. I love it. Um, Some of my runners-up were, um, at the very beginning, it's just in the background when he comes to the, he comes to this office to try and find a job. Um, I think it's before there's been any spoken lines in the movie actually but you can just hear Mm -hmm. an announcement in the background that says due to a computer error all food stamps have been suspended please do not apply at this time (laughs) (laughs) i i love that also one that i found totally mystifying was Mm -hmm. life's a bitch and she's back in heat (laughs) i really tried to figure out what that means no I mean, I know what it means, means but yeah. I, it's just, when was she not in heat? Like, I don't know. I have a lot of questions <laughs> about that line. Yeah. I don't know if it was as successful as the bubblegum line, but it was, I mean, it I, was silly. I guess like life's a bitch and now life wants to fuck you, but no, I, exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's like life stopped fucking you for a little while, but now she <laughs> wants to fuck you again. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. Her being in heat implies that you're going to fuck her. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if it really holds up to to <laughs> scrutiny. <laughs> um, I do also really enjoy the, uh, the preacher's, the street preacher's speech towards the mm. beginning. Yeah, I think that the way the film retains its tone even as it goes from being sort of political to being an action film. I feel like the messaging from that speech is a big part of it. Yeah. Yeah, and the way that it's delivered, um, like he's shouting so impassionedly, it's not that easy to understand every word that he says, like when he says, our owners. I didn't know Mm -hmm. at first what he was actually saying. And then as you hear the rest, you it kind of clicked like what that he was saying, our owners, they have us, they control us. Owners mm-hmm. is just one of those awkward words. Yeah. That, yeah, if you just hear it by itself, it's like, what? What are you saying? Yeah. Um, so as that line sunk in, um, it kind of reveals itself to you in this sinister sort of way. Right. Well, I mean, this is a movie I feel like I don't know if I would have watched it on my own. And if I did, I probably would have just been like, okay, yeah, I got it. You know, capitalism, bad, whatever. But Mm -hmm. really being able to go in depth 
with you about it has has revealed a lot of it to me. So I I don't know if I would have joined the cult of this mm-hmm. movie if I'd seen it on my own. But now <laughs> I feel like I feel like you've kind of indoctrinated me. I'm I'm glad you're one of us. That's the the magic <laughs> of double exposure. You have been yes. double exposed. Right. It's um it's it, it, yeah i feel like maybe there need to be some sort of mullets in this cult. <laughs> like they're like we, we can work get on a them. mullet or the mullet could be our symbol yeah the red mullet the red mullet is good because it has kind of a communist suggest like a true. suggestion of communism i like that i think that's on brand if there's ever merch that's going to be the merch yeah <laughs> yes <laughs> Well, I think that pretty much wraps up our conversation of They Live. Mm. I'm really curious how you're going to follow this. Yes. So I had a couple of movies that I was sort of toying with for mm-hmm. this initially. Um, that all, I think, sort of fall into this category of like anti-capitalist boy movies. Mm-hmm. that I love. Um, so, for example, Fight Club, American Psycho, The Matrix, right. like all very good movies with, I'm sure, a lot for us to examine and unpack. Um, and very worthy of an yeah. episode. But in the end... There was just, there was a film that this kept reminding me of as I was watching it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a movie I've only seen once before, but watching this made me really want to revisit it because I, I just found, I, I just kept thinking of it during this film and felt like, like these two would tie together in a really interesting way. So it's, I'm only going to tell you the year and I'll mm-hmm. see if you can have a, and I'll, and I'll let okay. you guess. All right. But it is a 1976 film. Um, I mean, we had spoken about Invasion of the Body Snatchers, so, but I don't think that was it. Um, 76. So, genre-wise, it is pretty different. Okay. Content-wise, it is related. I'm trying to think what came out in 76. Star Wars came out in 77. Mm. It's not not Jaws, is it? (laughs) It's not Jaws, no. No. Um... No, I have no idea. It's a director who I know you are a fan of. Is it Werner Herzog? No. (laughs) Oh, that might not. That might be like a misleading clue. I don't know if we've Uh, like super talked about this director, but I know that he's directed some movies that you really like. Okay. Um. Director. Okay, let no. me uh, uh all right. Let me ask you if this line means anything to you. If I say that I'm mad as hell 
and I'm not going to take it anymore. It's network. Yes. Oh, shit. And also, there is a... So, now that we've said that, uh-huh. there is one final amusing line that I saw uh, in, I think, a Rolling Stone review of this movie uh-huh. that spoke about its cult movie credentials, but described the movie as network with training wheels. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's exactly what I mean. It's like, oh, I feel like this is kind of the like B-movie simplistic version Mm -hmm. of network. And network is, uh, yeah, it's just like a different sort of beast. But yeah, yeah, they do feel interlinked in that way. Oh, amazing. Okay. I'm really looking forward to that. I've only seen it once and I'm keen to watch it again. Yes. Yeah, I'm really excited. But it does also mean that my my vacation of not having to do any research is is very over and now I have to go and watch every Sydney Lumet <laughs> film ever made. Oh, after two on the trot, I'm finally free. Yeah, I'm yeah. looking forward to taking taking a week off and <laughs> just relaxing. Yeah. Yes, well, you you've earned it. You enjoy. I'm not bitter at all. <laughs> Definitely not, no. Well, yeah, so thank you for joining us for mm-hmm. They Live and tune in in a couple of weeks for Sydney Lumet's Network. We'll see you there. Yeah, once again, I am Stacy Robinson. I'm still Adam Harris. And this is and will forever be Double Exposure. Bye. 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 Bye.